the reading for us. Thanks, Hannah. Hopefully I can still read. <laughs> uh, Luke chapter 8, 42 to 46. The woman who touched Jesus' cloak. As Jesus went along, the people were crowding him from every side. Among them was a woman who had suffered from severe bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all her money on doctors, but no one had been able to, to cure her. She came up in the crowd behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and her bleeding stopped at once. Jesus asked her, asked, who touched me? Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, people are all around you and crowding in on you. But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I knew it when power went out from me. The woman saw that she had been found out, so she came trembling and threw herself at Jesus' feet. There in front of everybody, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been healed at once. Jesus said to her, My daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Thanks, Hannah. So I wonder if you can picture the scene. Jesus is always busy, always pressed, always having people pressing after him and asking him for something. And he's on his way. He's kind of in motion, if you can imagine, through the streets of Jerusalem. He's in motion. And he's got a long cloak. And somewhere, probably on the ground, is this lady. And she just does a very simple thing. <laughs> All she does is reach out, and as his cloak is trailing behind him, she just grabs hold of his clothing. She just touches the edge of his coat. And at the moment that she does that, power is transferred to her, and she is healed. Incredible story. It's only a few verses, isn't it? If you blink, you miss it. But some of these little passages in scripture that are so easy to skip over, I've really felt that we could just spend a few moments thinking about this lady. Now, she doesn't have a name, so if you don't mind, I'm going to give her the name Ruth, a good Jewish name. I'm just going to call her Ruth rather than the woman with the issue of blood every time. Imagine, I'd like to invite you to use your imagination to imagine what life was like for Ruth. Before she became sick, she had a family, perhaps a way of earning money. Perhaps she had the hope of maybe one day being married or having children of her own. Now, after 12 years of sickness, she has spent all of her money and she has nothing left. She has nothing left. She carries the shame of her bleeding and her sickness, and she's shunned by society. She has no status or rights, and she is very isolated. When we read Leviticus, the Levitical law, which I put it on one of the slides. On. Where did it go? Hang on. There. Jewish purification law says that those who became ceremonially unclean, for example, by touching blood or by touching a dead person, were separated from worship at God's temple. And any person or thing that touched, they touched, so the person who was contaminated, if you like, anything they touched was made unclean as well. And so God set his chosen people, Israel, apart from all other nations to be holy. And he set out in Leviticus this very detailed, very complex list of 
ceremonial laws about purity. And they're very strict and they're quite legalistic, if you like. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, we read, But you, Israel, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So if we go back to the story, we can see in that rather fuzzy picture, there's Jesus. Now, when we look at an artist's depiction, it's only one artist's interpretation. But can you see, can anybody tell me which one is Jesus? Poppy, looking at the picture. Can you see the picture? Which one is Jesus? Can you see it? Can anyone tell me, Christine? Which one is Jesus in the picture? Yeah, and he's got sort of, he's sort of glowing. He's glowing. He's got the ready breath glow. He is the one glowing. But in real life, in real life, we know that Jesus, although he carried the power of God because he was God, was unlikely to be glowing. He, looks every, he looked every bit like every other person on the high street. He didn't look different from anyone else. And yet we know that this woman must have heard about Jesus, must have heard that he opened the eyes of the blind, that he caused the lame man to, to, to leap, that he had the power of healing, that he had the power to help her because she has nothing left and she is absolutely desperate. The law meant that Ruth was excluded from her family, excluded from the marketplace, excluded from worship because she was continually bleeding. And now we know that probably a condition like that is probably caused by fibroids or polyps in the womb and there's laser cutting edge laser surgery that happens at Southmead Hospital where that problem can be cured and someone can be, can be healed through the, the amazing advances that we've made in medical medicine. But at that time... There was nothing she could do. There was nothing she could do. She had spent all of her money and the doctors said, we don't know how to help you. When Paul and I watched this clip on The Chosen, which is a very powerful interpretation of the biblical story, she is forced to wash her clothes and to, to, to live in isolation. And it is incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. In this picture we see that she's surrounded by darkness, that she's actually lower than Jesus in this picture, that she's in a really dark place. And you can see the isolation in that picture. She's isolated and she reaches out to touch the hem of his garment. And he's, Jesus says, who touched me? Do you ever wonder why Jesus asks a question when he already knows the answer? I find Jesus' questions very thought-provoking, don't you? Who touched me? And the disciples say, Jesus, everybody is touching you. We're in a crowd. It seemed like a silly question. But Jesus says, no, someone touched me because power went out from me. And if we go back to the passage, Someone touched me, for I knew power went out of me. And the woman saw she had been discovered or found out, so she came trembling. I imagine with fear, because the penalty, what she was actually guilty of doing, potentially, was making Jesus unclean, because she was unclean. And she was trembling. I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be 
I'm going to be in a lot of trouble because I've touched Jesus and I've made him unclean. And they're in front of everybody, exposed. She tells him why she touched him. I've been sick all these years and I was desperate for healing. And so I touched you. I touched your clothing. Perhaps that was intentional. She didn't want to defile Jesus. She wasn't allowed to touch anyone. And so she just touches his clothing. And at the very moment she touched him, she she was healed. And Jesus says this thing to her, beautiful words, my daughter, my daughter. In Zechariah 9 verse 9 we read, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, for your king comes to you. See, he comes. When the Lord Jesus says to her, my daughter, he's not just a a throwaway remark. He is conferring on her a great honor. He is taking her from this dark, horrible place that she was in of degradation and shame. and And he is conferring on her the honor and saying, you are a daughter a daughter of Israel, a daughter of the king. Within Jewish culture, the word daughter is extremely rich in meaning. It is the woman in the home who takes on the role, the daughter takes on the role, the the head of the woman in the house, of lighting the candles at Shabbat. To be a daughter of Jerusalem means to have that honor of carrying the promise, the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord God of Israel, to be a daughter of the king is an honor. And so Jesus looks at her and he says, my daughter, my daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so her whole life is marked by this event. Before her illness, she would have led a full life. Now, This 12 years of suffering and the shame that she would have carried. But when it says defiled, when we look at this word defiled, I feel like it needed a bit more explanation. What does defiled mean? Because we don't use that word in everyday English anymore. So when you look up the definition, being an English teacher, you know, you always have to go to the definition, don't you? (laughs) It means to pollute, spoil, to make unclean or dirty. And that is what this lady was so afraid of when she was trembling. Have I defiled him? Have I, am I going to be guilty of defiling? And once someone had been defiled, they could no longer go to worship in the temple. They had to go through ritual cleansing in order to be made clean, in order to be able to go back to square one, in order to be um, able to enter into God's presence. But did Ruth make Jesus unclean? No. Jesus made her clean. And so we see that Jesus Christ has the power to reverse the natural order. God can reverse every every word that might have been spoken over you for harm. Every word that has been spoken over you that might cause you harm or hurt or pain. God has the power to reverse that. And he says to us this morning, you are my daughter. Barca, 
you are my daughter. Travis, you are my son. He bestows that honor on us. Isn't that beautiful? I don't know if you've ever been healed, but I, my testimony this morning, I was thinking, what example can I give of healing? I was healed, and I would say it was probably from shame. Shame, which is why I've written shame on there in pen. Because I thought about this woman, and for a minute I could identify with her. Because when I was 24, I got married at Woodlands Church. My husband was, his name was Patrick, he was South African Indian. And we went to live in Mozambique, and it was a very difficult marriage. He was 20 years older than me, which was tricky to begin with. People did say to me, Mel, think about that. And he was also from a very, very different culture from me. And so, so suddenly, transported all the way over the other side of the world, I found myself married to someone I didn't really know very well, who had a completely different lifestyle um, and way of thinking about life than me. And I felt very, very isolated and very alone. And after four years of quite a difficult marriage, we tried to have counseling, we tried to sort of work it out, because we were Christians and we'd made a vow before God, which we take extremely seriously. But at the end of four years, Patrick said, I just, I'm so sorry, Mel. I just don't think I should ever have got married. I don't think I'll ever get married again. I'm, I'm just designed to be single and I can't, really, I can't really meet your needs. I can't really be married anymore. I just can't do this. And we got divorced. And I came home to England feeling very ashamed. And at one church in South Africa, someone said to me, well, you married someone who was a different culture from you. What did you expect? Which wasn't very loving. And different people have different responses, don't they? Like, oh, you know, mm -mm -mm. you should have known better. And maybe they were right. But when I came back to my home church, which was Woodlands, Pam Scott Cook, good woman, put her arms around me and said, Melanie, you are a child of God. And although you feel ashamed because you've been divorced, although you feel that maybe God's plans for you have had an end, they are not at an end. You are still God's child. And God is able to heal and deliver and restore. Within six months of coming back to the UK, Patrick died suddenly of malaria. And he went home to be with Jesus. And sometimes, you know, years later, you look back on these events. You know, when you, when you diarize them and you think, that is so strange. I would have been with him on that trip. I would have caught malaria. Perhaps we both would have died and gone home to be with the Lord. But that wasn't God's plan. God had a plan for my life. And part of that plan now is these two lovely kids and my husband. And I'm so grateful that God gave me a second chance, that he didn't judge me on my failure in my first marriage. Um, you know, I broke my marriage vows, if you like. You know, that, that marriage ended, and that made me feel extremely ashamed and sorry. And that was something I had to work through and say, God, I am so sorry, please help me. So when I think about this woman and her shame, I think about how it must feel to be excluded. And I think when we think about being excluded from society, this image, does anyone know what that image might be referring to? Yes, we don't need to talk about COVID, do we? I think we've exhausted that subject. But it's just an example of how it feels when you can't be with the people that you love, when you can only visit them through glass, your precious children, grandchildren, family members, mother, father, aunts, uncles. And this exclusion, 
um, can be paralleled. There's a modern day example today of the untouchable caste in India who even their own cups and saucers that they drink from are not to be shared with anybody else because they are treated with this contempt. And it's like a law. It's been legalized. And so it's no use us saying, oh, that was a long time ago. Those sort of travesties don't occur now, do they? Sadly, yes. And so as we bring our prayers and petitions to the Lord, one of my prayers is, Lord, break this curse in India. Break the curse that says that this human being is inferior, that one is inferior to another. It's a very powerful thing when that is broken off someone. And that what was, was broken off, this lady, Ruth, when she came to Jesus, Jesus touched her and said, my daughter, your faith has healed you. She was set free, free from being untouchable, free from being an outcast, free from being excluded. And as I've been meditating recently on the power of the blood, just as I was thinking about the power and the significance of the blood, Tony, what a wonderful Bible teacher he is, brought us this verse from Leviticus 17.11 last week. I hadn't ever really noticed it before, to be honest. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And Tony asked us last week, why couldn't Jesus just forgive us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And even though at this point Jesus hadn't died, he was living and ministering on the earth, the woman reaches out and she touches the Son of God and power goes out from him. There was a transference of power. And in my job in the hospital, sometimes I felt prompted to hold the hand of the patient. And while I'm holding the patient's hand, I pray, Lord, in my head, may there be a transference of power from me to the patient. From me to the patient. May your power go out from me to this patient and may they be healed. May they, may they come to know you. May they know your love. May they know that they are a child of God. Because there are a lot of people sitting in the hospital who need that love, who need that reassurance, who need to be told, you are a child of God. You are beloved of God. And so the power of the blood is, is the most precious and sacred thing that we have in Scripture that we have, there has to be a sacrifice made. And that sacrifice that Jesus made for us is what enables us to enter boldly into the presence of God, to come into the Holy of Holies, to come into that place where Ruth was prohibited. Can you imagine her joy? Can you imagine her joy? She wasn't just healed physically. She was given like salvation. There was two reasons that Ruth was in need. Firstly, her sin, which separated her from God. And secondly, her sickness, which separated her from people. 
another part of my testimony. Uh, while I was growing up in Bristol, my parents were quite unusual, quite eccentric. They went around to lots of different churches and they prayed for lots of different churches. But at one time, a minister kind of misunderstood why they were going from church to church. And he wrote a rather poisonous letter saying, this couple are just going from church to church. They're really dodgy, don't have anything to do with them. And when I walked into my dad's office, I must have been about 17, I just happened to see this letter. And while I read this letter, it felt like, ow, oh, this like kind of knife went into me. And I read this letter because at the top it said CC and it had copied in all of the leaders of the main churches in Bristol, all of them across the top. And I was like, how could he say these lies about my parents? And it really, really hurt. About 25, 30 years later, I was at New Wine and this young girl, well, she wasn't that young anymore, she's my age. <laughs> she came up to me and she said, Mel, and I said, oh, Susie, let's call her. Susie, I haven't, she said, Mel, I haven't seen you for ages. She was holding all her pots and pans. She'd just been to the washing up. She said, Mel, you know, I've been thinking about you and I, I really need to say sorry for something. And I said, Susie, I don't think there's anything you need to say sorry for. We haven't seen each other for 25 years. She said, well, when, I, when, we, were children, when we were kids, we used to hang out, didn't we? My, my, you, me and her sister, Susie's sister, and my sister and I used to hang out with her. We used to hang out together. We used to go out, go to meetings, just go to the movies, that kind of thing. We were friends. And she, they sort of just sort of cut us off, my sister and I. My sister and I said, it's just strange that Susie and her sister don't ring anymore. strange that they don't get in touch. She said, oh, the thing is, my parents got this letter about your parents and it all came flooding back. I was like, oh, that letter, oh. I thought I'd forgotten about it, thought it was dealt with, thought I'd forgiven the person who'd written the letter. And she just said, I need to say sorry to you because we stopped hanging out with you. We were kids, we were 17. We stopped hanging out with you because we thought we were dodgy. And then I saw your sister's face on our screen at our church and that your sister and her husband are serving God in Peru. She said, I felt so bad. I felt so convicted. I'm so sorry. It wasn't her fault. I'm so sorry that we cut you off and that we listened to lies that were spoken. And we, and we are so sorry. And just in her, forgive, her asking me for forgiveness, there was healing. And I had to go back to my tent at the campsite and just kind of do business with God, have a cry, you know, let out the pain of that, of that incident that had happened so many years before. And the reason I tell you this is because I feel like other people here have been hurt by those in authority over them. And I think when it's a church thing, it can be much, much more painful because it's, it's so personal and we love the church and we pray for unity. So what I wanted to do this morning as we close is just to offer you the opportunity for prayer. And um, you may feel comfortable praying with the person next to you who you came with or who you know really well. But Paul and I are here, and I'm sure Kate as well, and others who would pray for you if you would like prayer. For any of these issues that we've been discussing this morning, and the last passage is from 1 John 1, 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so we come back to the cross 
and the powerful blood of Jesus, which is able to heal. And, you know, one last point is that I was very encouraged by, you know, when, when the woman reached out and touched Jesus's cloak, you could say, well, how could she possibly be healed by his clothing? And so we can only conclude that the power of God can flow through material objects like our clothes. And that's true because the apostles prayed over handkerchiefs in the New Testament. You remember that passage which says Paul and the apostles prayed over a handkerchief and took it to the sick? And if you have a friend or someone that you know who's unwell and you can't get to them, we can pray over a handkerchief. Lord, let your power rest on this object. It's just a physical object. And may this object be a sign to that person that they are healed. Because God is able to do that. So shall we just close in, in prayer? And just let's just think one, for a few more minutes about this amazing woman who came to Jesus desperate, alone, broken. And in that one moment of encounter with the living God, her whole life changed. The words of this hymn, which my mother sang to me when I was a child, in the song, the hymn was written in the 1800s. Oh, touch the hem of his garment, and you too shall be free. His healing power this very hour will give new life to you. She came in fear and trembling before him. She knew her Lord had come. She felt that from him power had healed her. The mighty deed was done. So touch the hem of his garment today, and you too shall be free. His healing power, this very hour, will give new life to you. Come Holy Spirit, we ask you, overshadow us this day, Lord, where there may be things that are hidden, even of deep, deep wounds that go back a long, long time. Thank you, Lord, for healing me, for bringing to light the pain and for helping me deal with it, helping me give it to you, Lord. And I just pray for anybody else who might be feeling that pain, Lord, that you would heal them. Anyone in physical pain, we lift up Phil to you this morning and pray for healing. We lift up Terry and we ask for healing. We ask for protection over Terry who has a malignant brain tumor. We ask you, Lord, for those we love, that you will bring physical healing, that you will bring emotional healing, that you will bring spiritual healing because you are powerful. And we ask you, Lord, that as we, your sons and daughters, place our hands on people, that they would feel power, power from you. For your glory, we ask this, Lord, that you might be glorified that all men and women might know that you are the Son of God, the precious Holy One of Israel. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.